This week on the Docs to Dads podcast, we are moving through our Raising Resilient Kids toolbox. We've talked about the importance of safety and compassionate, predictable availability. And when you have those two things in place, your kids might start telling you some stuff. That's the goal. So what do you do with that information? What do you do with those emotions that they're unloading on you? You put it in your emotional container. That's what we're talking about this week. Check it out on Docs to Dads, episode 42, for a discussion of this important parenting tool. Hello and welcome to the Docs to Dads podcast, a health and wellness resource for any dad looking to actively engage with their health, the health of their children, and building a stronger, healthier community around their family. Each week, Dr. Scott, a board-certified pediatrician, will explore topics relevant to child health and how dads can be an active participant in their growth, development, and other issues that affect children and the whole family. Welcome back to the Docs to Dads podcast. I'm Dr. Scott, your host. I'm so thankful for you all tuning into the podcast each week. This is such a special experience for me, and this series that we're working through right now is honestly one of the primary reasons why I decided to do this podcast in the first place. Uh, So if this is your first time listening to the show, I want to say a big welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us here uh, on the Docs to Dads podcast. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd be willing to connect with me, either on social media or shoot me an email at docstodadspod at gmail.com. You can find all that in the show notes. Uh, This is actually going to be the fourth episode in a five-part series on raising resilient, thriving children. Uh, So if this is your first time here, uh, you might want to check out those previous episodes just to give you a little more context for this episode. This week, I want to spend some time talking about another tool for parents, raising resilient, thriving children. And the idea we're going to talk about today, originally, I at least heard about it for the first time from one of my heroes in this space, which is Dr. Heather Forkey, who runs a foster care clinic in the Boston, Massachusetts area. I've talked about her before on the podcast. She's really a wonderful physician. She's an excellent teacher. I've learned a lot of what I learned about this trauma-informed care and resilience-focused approaches from her and her team. So special shout out to her today. And this is a concept that she talks about a lot when she's talking to families in her clinic about trauma-informed care. Because in her clinic, she's seeing kids who are generally living in foster care or kinship care, which means they're living with somebody um, who is not their sort of uh, biologic parents, right? They they are either foster parents that they don't know or in kinship care. They might be uh, related in some way to that family member, but they you know, may or may not know them particularly well at the point that they're put in the care of those folks. And usually that happens in response to some kind of adversity. Um, and so these kids will frequently have some pretty big emotions that they need to, to process. And so they may be having flashbacks to whatever the trauma was that they experienced. They may be missing their parents because they don't fully understand you know, why they were removed in the first place. They That removal process itself might have been particularly scary or surprising, traumatic to them in some way. And so when they have other sort of scary or surprising things happen to them, they might have flashbacks or they might have a couple of, of different types of reactions, right? And so one reaction that we see sometimes from kids in these situations is they internalize things. They kind of come into themselves a little bit. Uh, they become really quiet. Dr. Forky sort of describes these as the chameleons. They try to like blend into the background and they you, they don't want to be seen or heard. They just sort of like 
try to disappear, basically. The other response that we see pretty frequently, and there's there's more than just these two, but these are sort of two of the more common ones and, and ones that maybe you might be able to relate to a little bit easier. Um, but the other response is that they sort of lash out. There's like screaming, there's big emotions, there's tantrums, there's meltdowns. They might even have some, some physical like aggression, hitting, those kinds of things. Um, they're trying to put up a fight against whatever danger it is that they're perceiving that they might be in. And so that's what they're trying to work through in that moment. And there, you know, certainly, like I said, there's other types of responses to this, but almost all of them will seem out of place to the new caregiver who's trying to provide that safe, stable, nurturing environment for the child that we've been talking about. And these outbursts can sometimes come with expressions of anger, frustration directed towards the new caregivers, and that these adults, they feel like they're unfair, or they may feel like they're disrespectful. And so they might be taken aback or have their own feelings about what's happening in those moments. But I want to reframe this in a couple of of key ways, just try to help us put this in perspective and then transition to like, what does this mean for you out there who are listening? So first, you know, while these reactions may not seem appropriate in this new environment that we presume to be safe, although that's not always the case, unfortunately, these habits were developed by the children to help them cope in the environment that they came from. And they don't know yet whether the new environment is going to be safe. They don't know yet whether that new environment is going to be a place where they can let their guard down and that they can trust the adults in the room because they've been in lots of other rooms where they couldn't trust the adults that were there, right? And so uh, Viktor Frankl sort of sums this up really well in his um, awe-inspiring book, Man's Search for Meaning. Highly recommend that book if you haven't read it yet. Very powerful account of his experience in one of the concentration camps during World War II. Um, And so one of the things that he says in this book as a psychologist himself is that an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior, right? So when you take children or anybody really and you put them in an environment or a situation that's atypical and they're sensing danger everywhere or they're not sure what to expect, they're going to develop some kind of coping mechanism, whether that's a coping mechanism of trying to disappear so that wherever the danger is coming from, they might just go past and, and I might not be the victim of that danger. Or they might develop a, a habit of trying to fight against that danger. But either of those are understandable responses to this abnormal situation where you're sort of being put in danger. And so that's one of the things. And so so that's the first thing. Like abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is is normal. That's what we would expect these kids to do. And secondly... It's almost never about the caregiver. There may be in some very rare situations, the situation where there's some pre-existing relationship with that caregiver and they don't get along or something like that. But, you know, one of the stories that Dr. Forky tells a lot that I've also seen um, when I've taken care of these um, kids in foster care and kinship care is the story of like the foster parents hear that they're going to receive a child that they're going to care for for some period of time. And so they want to make sure that like, Everything's ready for the kids. So they might have a, a little space made up for them. They might take the time to make up a nice dinner that they can have ready so the kid can eat when they come. Sometimes when these when the foster families are receiving these kids, it's not clear when the last time they had a real meal was. So they want to try to just start to offer that sort of caring environment for the child. And then the child gets there, keeping in mind what this child has just been through, right? They've just been removed from whatever caregiver they were with, which is traumatic, even if they 
know that that's a good thing that they're being taken away from that environment. But in some cases, they don't understand all the details that go into that, right? So then they're dumped into this new environment where they don't know anybody and they have this reaction because they don't know how else to handle it, right? And so they throw this generous portion of lovingly prepared spaghetti all on the ground. They say, I hate spaghetti and I hate you. And it doesn't take a PhD in psychology to know that that has nothing to do with the Italian delicacy that was splattered across the floor. And it certainly has nothing to do with that foster family. And so parents need to know how to respond in these kinds of moments. Now, hold on. Wait, Dr. Scott, this is an interesting story and all, but I'm not trying to take care of foster children. I'm just trying to figure out how do I handle my own kids' challenging emotions, right? They haven't been exposed to the level of trauma that these kids have. I just want them to to stop spitting out their food, and I want them to get in bed when I ask them to, right? Like, basic stuff, right? Fair enough. But anyone who has ever lived with a four-year-old knows that these big emotions are very common in their day-to-day experience. And so it may not be to the extremes that I've described from what, what Dr. Forky and others experience with their patients who, are, who have experienced real uh, deep trauma. But I think the response that parents can have is the same. And especially if you practice having this response, then... If your child somewhere down the road is exposed to some larger trauma, you'll have some sense of like, how can I respond in this moment to help take care of my child? And so one of those tools is going to be the tool we want to talk about today for raising resilient, thriving children, which is the emotional container. Now, the emotional container is where you put all these big feelings that children dump on you, right? So you don't internalize them at all. You just sort of accept them and you put them in the emotional container. Now, obviously, this is not like an actual container that you're putting anything in, but it's a, it's a for me at least, as in my role as a parent after I learned this, it's been a really helpful metaphor for me for how to handle these feelings when they come up, right? And so no matter, no matter how many times your toddler refuses to follow instructions or how many times your teenager tells you that they hate you, it's not about you. It's a reflection of something else that's going on. It doesn't always feel like it in that moment, But this is actually a positive reflection on your parenting. It means that your children feel comfortable enough with you to share some of these large emotions with you. And if you play your cards right, if you handle these situations correctly, you might really be able to dig deeper into the true underlying cause for these situations. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you've been trying to internalize everything that we've been talking about. You've set up your home life um, so that your kids have a feeling of safety and security that we talked about two weeks ago. You give your kids access to your time through compassionate, predictable availability, um, like we talked about last week. And then you're going to have more meaningful interactions with them because of that. We talked about all the reasons why that is likely to happen in last week's episode, right? But these meaningful interactions that you have with your children will not almost certainly will not all be positive, right? They're going to come to you when good things happen, but they're going to come to you with their struggles as well. And they may not in that moment want you to give them a solution, but they need help processing these emotions and processing the feelings that they're having about these struggles. So when you have these feelings unloaded on you, either unintentionally by a child who's just having a meltdown or intentionally by a child choosing to be vulnerable with you, 
try to just take those emotions and set them in the emotional container. So you acknowledge that those feelings that the child is having, you validate them, that they, they have a right to feel upset or frustrated or whatever it is, but you don't have to take these emotions onto yourself as the caregiver. You certainly don't need to internalize them. It's not going to help you see the situation more clearly, and it's not going to help your child process the emotions more efficiently or effectively. So just don't take those onto yourself. Don't carry the weight of those. Just take them and put them in the emotional container. And that's where they go, and they, they get stored that way. The most important thing to remember about the emotional container, and the reason you don't want to internalize these, is sometimes the language that's being used is going to sound like an attack on you. And so your initial response might be to get defensive and to shout back or to get angry with your child for sharing their emotions in this way. But remember, almost all of the time, it's not about you, even if it sounds like it is. So getting into a screaming match with your child or seeking to like, I'm going to win this interaction. I'm going to put my child in their place and I'm going to show them who's boss. Like none of that is helpful and it will only make the situation worse. And this is not easy. I struggle with this at some points myself too. So I don't want to give the impression here that this is something that I'm like a Zen master of like, I get frustrated with my kids when they don't listen to, and there are moments sometimes where I have to be reminded by my partner to say, like, why are you trying to win an argument with a four-year-old? Like, that's not going to happen. So just, like, let it be and figure out a different way to do that. What you want to try to do instead is just make sure that they are in a physically safe place so they're not going to hurt themselves or anyone else, and then just let them express those emotions and then slowly try to work to get to the root of whatever those emotions are, whether that's sadness or anger or whatever the case may be. And for younger kids, it might actually be helpful to try to help them name that emotion that they're feeling because they may not be able to describe that very well. And anger and sadness and frustration and guilt and disappointment and jealousy, they can all lead to a meltdown that basically looks the same uh, especially in younger kids, right? So I want to encourage you first not to assume that you know what is happening in their head just because you were there at the beginning of the meltdown or maybe it was your intervention or your correction that actually caused the meltdown in the first place. You might want them to feel sadness or guilt about something bad that they've done, but they might actually just feel angry at you for not letting them have the toy that they wanted or they might feel uh, disappointed that you know they're, they thought they were going to get a treat and they didn't end up getting it or, or something like that. And certainly as kids get older, the stakes get higher and they're frustrated and they're angry about much more uh, meaningful and important things. Um, but the approach again is is basically the same. I'm sharing examples of, of me and my my younger kids, um, but certainly the the tactics here look basically the same. And so in these moments, uh, what I try to, to do is think about attentive non-intervention is kind of the way that I think about this with myself. And so when your child is melting down and you can't have a conversation with them because they are just so far beyond rational thought, their prefrontal cortex where like our planning and, and all our executive functions happen is like totally shut down and they're just mad and they're going to be mad for a few minutes. You just kind of have to let them get through that. And the old recommendation of like, just ignore the temper tantrums, it's sort of partially right. You don't want to acknowledge um, it or try to like feed into it too much. And certainly if you're having a hard time regulating your own emotions, you're, you, maybe you're angry at your child for having this meltdown or you're frustrated because it's the sixth meltdown of the day and you're having trouble sort of regulating your own emotions in that moment, then sort of ignoring it in the sense that you 
walk away and recollect your own emotions might actually be a wise approach in that moment. But as you do this more frequently and you learn how to sort of keep your cool in the face of the storm, staying with them in that moment and trying to help them co-regulate their emotions uh, is is a really important um, thing to do. And that's how kids learn most things, right? At first, they can't do something, and then they try to do something, and we as parents come alongside them and help them do that thing, and then eventually they get to the point where they can do it on their own, right? That's like, if you think about the way that we teach them letters and numbers and colors, if you think about the way we teach them to roll over and sit up and walk, like every other skill that we try to teach our kids, we do in this way. We sort of let them start to show an interest in it. We come alongside them and sort of do it with them. And then we slowly give them the autonomy to do it on their own. So I don't see any reason why emotional regulation would be any different than that, right? So as they're trying to figure out what's going on with their emotions, staying with them in that moment, if you can, and helping them recollect their breath and get their thoughts back on track and learn the names of this emotion and figure out how to get to the root of what's causing their frustration or their their overwhelming emotions. If you can stay in that moment with them and help them do that, then eventually that's how they're going to learn to do it on their own. Throwing them in a room by themselves and like hoping that they figure it out or like waiting for them to just totally flame out might work in the short term, but it's not going to get you where you want your kid to be in the long run in terms of actually being able to regulate their emotions. And so I like the attentive non-intervention. So you can like be there in that moment and you just say something like, I'm just going to sit here and uh, I'm going to wait. And when you're ready to talk or when you're ready to, to snuggle, in the case of like my young kids, sometimes they just need to like get their breath together and then they want to just come sit in my lap and we like take some deep breaths together. We talk about what happened. And you just say, like, whenever you're ready, I'm here, right? And this is that next level compassionate, predictable availability, right? We talked about that last week. And certainly the first step is just sort of like being there. But when you can sort of be there in those hard moments and you can keep yourself together enough to be there and be compassionate and predictably available, that's next level. And so that's really where we want to get with that uh, tool number two. And part of it plays into this idea of being able to not take those emotions on yourself and schlep them off into the emotional container. And then you can stay there in that moment without your emotions getting overwhelming, right? And that's how your child can learn also to push away those things. And and the other real benefit to this is that it teaches your child that there's no situation in which they are going to get so out of control that they're going to lose you as a parent, that you're going to stop loving them, that you're not going to be there for them, those kinds of things. Now, it may take you a while to work up to this point, especially if you're somebody who's starting from a place of having difficulty with controlling your anger or having overwhelming emotions yourself. It may take you some time to develop your own sort of mindfulness habits and and hopefully thinking about this tool and using that as a metaphor will help you be able to do that effectively. But if you can get there, it's really going to demonstrate to your kid that not only do I love you when you're like happy and playful and we're having a good time, but even in those hard moments, I also still love you and I also am still there for you. That's really going to be meaningful for your kiddos in terms of their long-term development. But in some cases, you may find that that the struggles that your kids are dealing with are bigger than you can help them with yourself. Um, And so in those moments, you might, one, you might have a harder time yourself 
keeping your emotions under control because those might be situations where they disclose to you that they witnessed uh, some kind of violence or were the victim of some kind of violence that you weren't aware of. And you might be inclined to like really get angry and take some kind of like vengeful action or like seek justice in some way. And these feelings again are understandable and they're justified. If a child tells you that they were harmed in some way, and certainly eventually you're going to get to a point where we need to like, take some corrective action in that. But in that moment, you have to stay in that moment with your child. And if you can realize that your child also needs help sort of coping with what happened and that that corrective action might contribute to that coping, but isn't actually the thing that your child needs the most. And then you can find, you know, maybe a therapist or a counselor, a minister of some kind who's been trained in helping children who deal with whatever it is that your child disclosed to you that they went through, they might be also able to help you know how to take those next steps forward and do that effectively in a way that's actually going to bring some type of closure and some type of justice, if that's possible, to that situation. And so that's where you want to try to go. So sometimes when those feelings get a little bit too big, you might need some help. And so seeking out a therapist of some kind who can help both you and your child might be something that you need. Once you learn how to put all of these big emotions in the emotional container and stay in that moment with your child, it's really going to help you get to the heart of the issue and work with your child to make a plan for moving forward. This will be especially true if you've practiced that attentive non-intervention style and you've sort of rode the wave of that emotion with them. Uh, Then you can start having conversations like, you know, do you want me to help you solve this problem, whatever the issue is? Can I help you solve this problem? You might, as a parent, step into like, does your child need you to step in and protect them from some challenge that they tried to resolve on their own and they sort of did everything that they could, but is in some way or another like bigger than what they can handle on their own. And they need you going back to the first the first tool that we talked about to sort of step in to help keep them safe right? And to know that you're there, right? And again, just like we talked about two weeks ago, like that doesn't mean you step in for every little thing and that we're trying to protect our kids from from every little thing that might happen in the universe. But sometimes they're going to run into challenges where they need somebody to step in and protect them because it's too big for them to handle themselves, right? And the only way to know that is to sort of walk alongside them. And when they hit those roadblocks to be aware enough to sort of step in and provide that support. And there's a tension to that, right? Like, It's not always going to be obvious like where we should step in and where do you draw that line between protecting your kid and preparing your child to deal with problems on their own. And sometimes you're going to get that wrong. You're going to let your kid sort of go for too long trying to deal with things themselves um, when you maybe could have stepped in a little earlier to make make a difference. And there may be times where you step in a little too quickly and they they feel like, you know, dad, I really could have handled that if you'd just given me the opportunity. And that's sort of part of the parenting experience, I think. Um, but if you're paying attention, you'll get a better sense of, of how that goes. But you're not going to have any of those conversations until you can get through that emotional wave first. And you can learn to sort of put those emotions that they're unloading on you in the emotional container. And then you take steps to move forward. I want to thank you so much for listening to the Docs to Dads podcast this week. I hope that you will consider 
uh, subscribing to my newsletter. It's just for dads. It comes out every Monday morning. Uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter by going to docstodads.com slash newsletter. Each week, this goes out to my subscribers and you get bonus content from me that's written content. Uh, I usually either expand on the topic of the week or I answer listener questions that get sent to me via email, those kinds of things. Um, so I always try to make sure that that's full of value uh, for you. Um, I also share you know, different things that I'm doing in my downtime, books I'm reading, podcasts I'm listening to, movies I'm watching, TV shows, different things that I do in my spare time that are either bringing me joy or are making me a better dad or a better podcaster, something like that. So this isn't some like nonsense that I throw together in three minutes and push out uh, as a way to like build business. Like I really put some energy and effort into this. Um, I know that you, if you're listening to this podcast, you take your role as a dad very seriously. And I take that responsibility very seriously as well. And I want to make sure that I'm supporting you in that. And that's another thing that I take very seriously. So if that's something that sounds uh, interesting to you, I hope you'll head over to docsadads.com slash newsletter. And I look forward to catching up with you every Monday uh, when I send out that newsletter. I want to send a special shout out and thank you as always to Phil Raban, who edits the show. Uh, and now we're doing video stuff. And so he's going to help me get the video products all edited and, and hopefully up on our website soon. So special thanks to him for all the extra work that he's taking on during this. Again, if this is your first time listening, or even if you listen to all the episodes, I would love to hear from you. Send me a message on social media or shoot me an email. I respond to every email, every social media connection that I get. So please reach out to me. I'd really, really love to connect with you and, and hear how I can serve you and your family better. Tune in next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the final tool for building resilient, thriving kids. That's another good one. Until then, remember that what you do as a dad matters. Keep building healthier dads, happier kids, and stronger communities. Thanks. The information included in this podcast and other Docs to Dads platforms is intended for your education and entertainment only. It is not intended as medical advice and should not replace a relationship with a primary care pediatrician or other provider who will give the most appropriate recommendations for your individual situation.